Welcome to the audio sermons of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We hope you are encouraged by listening. For more information, please feel free to browse our site at www.sbrpc.org. We've been making our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, um, which is in the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to be looking together at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. So we're just kind of making our way through this letter uh, passage by passage. So let me go ahead and read that for us, Galatians 3, 10 through 14, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at this passage together. Let's listen now to God's holy word, beginning Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, we do uh, plead with you for your help, um, that your word would be explained clearly, that by your spirit you would take this word and cut us to the heart, that you would renew our faith with it, that you would call us to faith through your word. As we see Jesus this morning, Father, would you do this for our good and your glory? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think you all know what a symbol is. Uh, A symbol is something that represents or stands in the place of something else, right? And typically, a a symbol is fairly simple. But what it's representing or standing in the place of is a far greater, more complex reality, right? So the American flag or the Statue of Liberty, right? Those are simple, iconic symbols that represent a greater, more complex reality. Um, Mike the Tiger, Christmas trees, hearts on Valentine's days, the Nike swoosh, whatever. And there are thousands of others of examples of symbols that represent a greater, more complex reality. And the symbol of Christianity is a cross. All right, Paul, in fact, ends his letter to Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 appealing to this symbol of the cross. And there he says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a fascinating statement. Because what's the greater, more complex reality that is symbolized in a cross? I mean, long before crosses were pieces of jewelry, right? The cross in Paul's day was a horrific, brutal, grotesque, violent instrument of public shame, torture, and execution. It wasn't a symbol of strength and power, but of weakness and shame. Not a symbol of victory, but a symbol of being defeated and conquered and rejected. And Paul says, I boast in that. I mean, I counted three times this morning that you read the word boast in our call to worship or sang the word boast in our call to worship. Paul says, I boast in that. My confidence and my courage lie in that symbol of shame, defeat, and cursing. It's fascinating. You know, when it comes to Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, author John Stott called this passage one of Scripture's clearest expositions of the necessity, meaning, and consequences of the cross. And if you're a preacher, you're like, thank you, there's my three-point outline. Um, So that's what we're going to talk about. The necessity, the meaning, and the consequences of the cross. And we're going to see if we can find out why Paul would boast in this symbol of shame, defeat, and cursing. The necessity, the meaning, and the consequences of the cross. First, the necessity of the cross. See, in these few brief verses, you notice how Paul piled up several quotations from the Old Testament. Four quotations, in fact. Uh, Two from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, and one from Habakkuk. And bonus points if you can find Habakkuk. Paul was acting like a lawyer in this passage. Right? He's citing his sources and he's appealing to legal precedents that people know of. And the big theme that runs through all these quotations and Paul's whole argument is the theme of covenant. Right? And a covenant is an agreement between two parties that states the terms of the relationship between those parties. And if the terms were honored... There was a blessing. And if the terms weren't honored, there was a curse, which is why our passage speaks of both blessing and curse, because Paul's talking about this theme of covenant. See, God determined that he was going to have a relationship with his people, and so he entered into a covenant with them. God's law stated the terms of that relationship. So if that law was kept... If that law was obeyed, if the terms of the relationship were honored, then there was a blessing. And that blessing was life and intimate, loving relationship with God Himself, which is why Paul spoke of the blessing of Abraham in verse 14. But if the law was broken and disobeyed and the terms of the relationship were not honored, there was a curse. And that curse was death and rejection and being completely cut off and severed from a relationship with God. And that's why Paul quoted Deuteronomy 27 in verse 10. Cursed be everyone 
who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, let's slow down for a minute here. We tend to think of God's law as if it were an arbitrary, somewhat abstract list, moral or, or, or religious checklist or ethical checklist, right? God's law isn't like that at all. God's law is always relational. It always comes to us in the context of relationship. That's why the blessings and curses of God's covenant are always relational. Now, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking this might feel overwhelming to hear all this stuff right up front, especially if those categories and language like this is new to you, covenant and law and blessings and curses and all that kind of stuff. But here's what I want to comfort you with. We are all far more familiar with this concept than we realize. And you know why that is? It is because law forms the terms of all of our relationships and invokes blessings and curses on the basis of keeping those terms or not keeping those terms. So when you think about it like this, law forms the terms of relationship with your spouse. Right, if those terms, if those boundaries like faithfulness to one another aren't honored, there can't be a relationship. If you regularly, repeatedly violate your spouse in some way, what happens? The relationship suffers, it's broken, and it eventually dies. And the only way true, deep intimacy and friendship can flourish and give life in a marriage is by honoring the terms of the relationship. Law forms the terms of relationship with your children. Right, parents, you have to clothe and feed and provide for and protect your children. And if you do not, someone will step in and cut off that relationship and take your children away from you. Law forms the terms of your relationship with your pastor. Like, you showed up this morning probably expecting me to say something. Um, you know, and if I, if, if I ever stop doing that, the relationship has to end. Like, no more paycheck. Right? Your relationship with your friends, there are unwritten laws, right, of loyalty and support and honesty and so on to maintain the friendship. Your relationship with your employer or your employees, with your banker, your grocer, your doctor, your real estate agent, your IRS agent, right? It's tax season, by the way, and there are laws which form the terms of your relationship with the government. Um, laws written and unwritten form the terms of all of our relationships, and keeping or not keeping them is the basis of either blessing or curse. You see, C.S. Lewis um, beautifully portrayed this in his children's stories in the Chronicles of Narnia. Young Edmund, one of the characters in those books, um, he had betrayed the great lion, lion Aslan, um, who, who is a symbol in those books of Jesus. And the white witch, the evil white witch, came to Aslan demanding Edmund's blood to pay for his crime of betrayal. 
Right? And if you read that, those stories, you know that the queen, the evil white witch, she is appealing to deep magic or the law. And she said this to Aslan, unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. Why was the cross a necessity? That's where we started, right? The white witch is right. Right? The deep magic, the law, the terms of the relationship had been broken, and that demands justice. That demands blood. That demands the enacting of the curse. Deuteronomy 27, again, that we read earlier, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so there it is. If we don't abide by everything, Written in the law, we are under a curse. We are under judgment. We are cut off from a relationship with God. And how did Paul follow up that quote? Verse 11, this is what he wrote. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So let's put verses 10 and 11 together. You're cursed if you don't keep the whole law, the terms of the relationship perfectly, And the evidence is clear, Paul says, no one can. The broken law, the broken covenant, the broken terms of the relationship necessitate the cross and the carrying out of justice, the curse. All right, second, I want to talk about the meaning of the cross. The first point, I think, creates some tension if you really think about it. Because there's this question, how can a covenant breaker, how can a law breaker, how can a sinner like me have a loving and intimate relationship with a holy, righteous, and just God? You know, there are two ways I think we we attempt to deal with that tension on our own. And both are fairly represented in this room, I can promise you that. So, some of us deal with this tension by saying something like this. Maybe you don't say it out loud, but you reason internally. Yes, God is righteous and just and demands obedience, but the truth is He's mainly loving and accepts sinners like me. To resolve the tension, what we do is we elevate God's love over His justice. He's just, yes, but He's more loving than just. And that can create an appearance of love and acceptance of others. But I'll also tell you this, it's incredibly thin and shallow, and it's unable to call for or produce the deep, internal, radical transformation of character that the gospel says it can do. Others of us deal with this tension differently. Others of us deal with this tension from the other direction. We say, yeah, God's loving, but only up to a point. He's loving, but you better be careful because He's mainly just. So to resolve the tension, we're elevating God's justice over His love. And that can create an appearance of holiness, an appearance of righteousness. But there's no love 
There's no grace underneath it and therefore no beauty, just a self-righteous anger determined to fix everyone around you who can't live up to your standards. And here's what I want to say to you. Both of these ways of trying to deal with these detention, this tension between God's justice and His love are distortions of who God is. Because Scripture says God is perfectly holy in His justice and He is perfectly holy in His love. Neither attribute is ever elevated over and against the other. The tension between God's justice and love runs throughout the course of the Bible, and it can be confusing at times. At times you're reading the Bible and it feels even contradictory. Let me give you a famous example of this in one sentence from Exodus 34. This is the story of God revealing Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, and this is how God described Himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And if you read that and it's one sentence, you ought to be like, that's a little confusing. Right? Which is it? Forgiving iniquity? or visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children. You know, which is it, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, or by no means clearing the guilty? Which is it, we ask, and the Bible answers yes. God is 100% committed to justice and 100% committed to His love, always. Let's close the noop on the Chronicles of Narnia story real quick here before we move on. The white witch appealed to the deep magic, you know, or the law, which demanded justice and blood. But this is what Lewis wrote. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still. If she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. The cross of Jesus is the deeper magic because Jesus, the perfectly righteous, willing victim, went to the cross and at the cross, we see the full fury and wrath of God against all wickedness unleashed upon His only Son. His holy justice demands that every violation of the terms of your relationship with Him, every wicked action and thought, every self-centered motive be punished completely and entirely. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. But the, but the cross of Jesus, it, it, it's the deeper magic because justice isn't the only thing we see at the cross. At the same time, we see the fullness of God's love for us. God so loves sinners like you and me that He sent His own Son from glory to be born into the sin-torn and broken world. 
perfectly innocent, He willingly climbed the cross in your place to take the curse for you in your place. Paul wrote in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And theologian John Murray writes this, the father loved his people with such invincible love and purpose that he executed the full toll the full stroke of their condemnation upon his own son. That is the father's love. And then he asked, do you stagger with amazement? Does your mind reel with amazement? Oh, let that not be the amazement of bewilderment, but may it be the amazement of believing and adoring wonder. The amazement and the wonder that the cross means the full satisfaction of both God's justice and God's love coming together and embracing at the cross, right? In order that you would know his radical commitment to loving you, in order that you would know that for you in Jesus, there can be no condemnation because Jesus has taken the full curse of the law in your place. May ours be the amazement of believing and adoring wonder. That's the meaning of the cross, what it means. Finally, the consequences of the cross. Um, Every biblical commentator that I read and a couple sermons I listened to on this passage pick up on the fact that Paul is laying out two very different approaches to God. That's what he's doing in this passage. Two different philosophies of life. Two diametrically opposed strategies for living, right? And this applies whether you're religious or not this morning. Here are those two strategies. You can rely on the works of the law, verse 10, and you can get your confidence from the law, or you can live by faith. Paul quoting Habakkuk in verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's it. You're either going to trust in your performance and achievements, or you're going to place your trust in the performance and the achievements of another. You'll either boast in your own work, or you'll boast in the works of another. And here's where I'm trying to bring it full circle to where we started with Paul at the end of his letter telling his readers that he will not boast in anything except the cross of Jesus. Do you know what boasting is in the Bible? Um, When we hear the word boasting, maybe one of the first words that comes to my mind anyway is something like bragging, right? And that's not all wrong, but in the ancient world, boasting was a ritual part of warfare, a ritual. You read in Exodus where Pharaoh boasted to rally his soldiers and his troops to overtake the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. God whittled down Gideon's army and judges so that Israel wouldn't boast in their own strength. It was a ritual part of warfare. Boasting was how military leaders got their soldiers whipped into a frenzy of excitement so that they would rush out onto the battlefield. No one wants to rush out onto a battlefield where they might be killed. 
And so what do you do? You get together and you boast. And you say, our swords are sharper. Our chariots are faster. Our arms are stronger. Our numbers are greater. And you scream it and you shout it and you chant it over and over and over until you're ready to charge. Right? What, what you're doing is you're pushing your fears out. We can do it. We can't lose. We're the best. We're invincible. We're enough. And maybe you pound your chest and you clang your sword against your shield until you're ready to run out on the battlefield. You're trying to get rid of your fear because the truth is we are all deeply afraid. We are afraid of how insecure this broken world is. We're afraid, deeply afraid, that we don't have what it takes, right? That we're not enough, that maybe the truth is we're not lovable, that we don't matter. So let, let me ask you this, what does this metaphorically pounding on our chests, what does that look like when we're relying or boasting on the works of the law? Well, on the one hand, you might get very busy religiously or morally and try to be a good person, and you strive to be good enough, to be pure enough, and, and you'll probably gauge your success in comparison to others. Or at least I'm not like them, followed by some, you know, chest pounding. That's how I know I'm one of the good ones. But man, it's so fragile. And if that's you, you live in so much anxiety. Because can you really be sure that you've done enough? Have you done it good enough? Are you pure enough? But it's not just that we do it morally and religiously. We'll look at any work to pound our chest and boast that we have what it takes. I'm smart. I'm a good person. I'm a good parent. I'm successful. I keep my commitments. I'm a hard worker. I care about the right social issues and causes. I have a great reputation. And on and on we could go, all the different things we look at to get our confidence. And if your confidence, your boasting, is relying on your works, whatever those works are, you're going to spend your life riding a violent, insecure roller coaster. Because you're going to move up and feel like you're in control when things are going great. And then you will be speeding towards the ground in frightening despair when you've fallen. Up and down, up and down, up and down. It's, it's a nauseous trip, really. But Paul was saying, I found something to boast in. I found something to rely upon, to place my confidence in, that will never, ever, ever let me down. And that is the cross. The cross, the symbol of shame, defeat, and cursing, I'll boast in that. I'll trust in what Jesus did for me in my place. Paul wrote in verse 13 that Jesus became a curse for us. Every time and in every way we've betrayed God by breaking the terms of our relationship, Jesus became what I deserved and took the curse for me. But it's even more than that. Not only did Jesus take the curse for me, he also gave me the blessing, the blessing of Abraham that only he deserved. See, verse 13 of our passage, it's a parallel passage uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says this, God made him, made Jesus to be sin, 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's at least hinted at in our passage when Paul quotes Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. In the same way that your sins are credited to Jesus and he takes the curse for for you, he also credits you with his righteousness and gives you the blessing only he deserved. Do you see how this gets rid of the ups and downs, right? Of the insecure roller coaster. Whether you succeed or whether you fail, whether you do well or whether you stumble and fall, if you're resting and relying and boasting in what Jesus has accomplished, you have nothing to fear and you are free. If you're around my age, um, you might remember watching the Winter Olympics in, I think it was 2010, uh, where this skinny kid with long red hair named Sean White was making waves with his snowboard, right? Uh, he was a snowboarder, and there was all this hype around him, even before his first run. You can go back and watch this, by the way. Even before his first run, the commentators were already talking and spreading rumors that Sean might do this never-before-seen trick at these Winter Olympics. And um, Sean called this trip, trick, by the way, the double McTwist 1260. Um, I don't know if it was like a McDonald's thing he had or what, but it was two flips and three and a half, uh, 360 degree turns. You know, he went down on his first run and without even doing the McTwist thingy, um, he scored a 46.8 and won the gold medal outright. You know, all he, just like that, the competition was over. And when his second run came up, all he had to do was just slide to the finish line. No tricks, nothing, because it was over. He'd already won. But to the shock and surprise of everyone that was there, on his final run, on his last trip, Sean launched into the air off this half pipe, and he went for it. The McTwist thing all the turns and flips and all that kind of stuff, and he nailed it. And he didn't have to. He didn't have anything to prove. He already had secured the gold medal. He did it just for the joy of doing it. And by the way, he scored higher on that run of 48.4. What if in Jesus you already had everything you need The gold medal is already yours. The curse has been removed. And the blessing of Jesus' righteousness has been credited to you. Now, if you knew you had that, if that's where your confidence was, then you'd be free. And you'd have the confidence to face anything that came into your life. And you could finally live before God and others in confident, humble boldness, instead of searching for joy constantly, you could live out of the joy you already have in Jesus as you boast in the cross. Last little thing I'm going to say this morning. Um, At the end of our service, um, there always comes a point after that last hymn where I get up here, one of the other pastors, and we tell you to receive God's benediction. You know, that's Latin for good word. We say, so you receive 
God's good word by faith. And I'm telling you, the only way you can receive the benediction, the good word of God by faith, is that Jesus took the malediction, the bad word, the curse in your place so that you could have the benediction. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we could be together this morning and that we have opportunity as we are gathered to direct our praise and our worship to you, to direct our amazement and adoring wonder to what you have accomplished for us through Jesus in the cross. Lord, you know how fickle we are and how we often look for other things to place our confidence in. Father, would you grant us faith and repentance that we would turn towards you again and take our confidence in the cross of Jesus who took the curse for us in order that we might have his blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this audio sermon of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Please feel free to pass it along to others who might be encouraged by this message. Also, if you have any questions or would like to know more about the church or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, please feel free to browse our website at www.sbrpc.org or contact the church office directly at area code 225-768-9999. Again, thank you for listening.